0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We turn now to a study of the Vienna Circle and the Foundings of Logical Positivism, It's a movement that many people associate with analytic philosophy almost exclusively. Uh, It's what comes to their mind when they think about analytic philosophy. It's very distinctive. It was very influential for many years, especially in England and America. But it did gradually lose its grip and so that in the last 30 years or so philosophy has become much more open and pluralistic. And even those who would call themselves analytic philosophers today are mostly not committed to logical positivism or anything close to it. Nevertheless, I think it is the movement most closely associated for many people with analysis or linguistic analysis. There was at the time of uh, in between the wars, shortly after World War I, as I mentioned before, there was a time of anti-nationalism, anti-traditionalism that surfaced in many areas of our culture, not just in the intellectual world, in art, in music, in architecture, and so forth, out of reaction to the nationalist themes that many thought were part of the cause for the Great War. And some decided that there was really a need now for a purely rational foundation for human life, for human communities, and so forth. And architecture especially reflects this, I think. There was a kind of preference for clear, simple lines, Geometrical shapes, and there I think the Eiffel Tower was especially taken to be a paradigm of this type of architecture. The Eiffel Tower was built to commemorate the French Revolution uh, in the late 1880s, and it was purposely, I think, deliberately intended to be a kind of Tower of Babel. I mean, to show what human ingenuity, human technology, what science can achieve. And you can see, if you look closely at it, how much it's based on geometry and on clear smooth clean lines and so forth it could be in a sense even though it's located in french you might say it could have been located anywhere there's nothing about it that is in a sense particularly french it's supposed to be a kind of paradigm you might say of some of the themes of the revolution equality and uh, liberty rationality, reason as the kind of overall overriding theme so architecture uh, some architects anyway decided that buildings should be free of, mostly free of decorative flourishes, of ornamentation, of anything that would be specific to a particular time or place or people, something that that had a kind of universal, universality to it. And furthermore, something that would be along the same lines, there was a desire to go back to something that would be inexpensive, that would be available to the masses, Uh, There was a huge influx of people into the cities, a huge urbanization of the population, and uh, people needed housing and so forth. So there was a sense of creating something that would would accommodate many people, that would be universally recognizable, and so forth. And simplicity is very cost-effective in architecture. Louis Henry Sullivan, who was born in the 1850s, died in 1924, was one of the architects that helped to create the new Chicago skyline after the Great Fire of 1871. And he said it could only befit us if for a time we were to abandon ornament and concentrate entirely on the erection of buildings that were finely shaped and charming in their sobriety. And if you look at many of the buildings of this era, they are in fact very straightforward. They're um, geometrically shaped often in kind of rectangular lines and so forth and they're free of ornamentation. There was a young Czech architect who was working for a time in uh, Sullivan's office And uh, he just promoted this new vision of things with a, a vengeance, a kind of a messianic zeal. His name is Adolf Luce. And he later made his home in Vienna. But Luce viewed decoration in architecture as a form of obscenity. He says, I have made the following discovery, and I pass it along to the world. The evolution of culture is synonymous with the removal of ornament from utilitarian objects. So the machine is going to be the new metaphor now. We're not going to have decorative, fancy things that serve no purpose. And a machine, you don't have any extra parts. If you do, they're likely to interfere with the efficiency of the machine. Everything contributes to a purpose. If it doesn't have a purpose, it's not there, and so forth. So this is going to replace earlier, you know, focus on identities of various kinds. There were two architects who wrote a book in 1914 called The Futurist Manifesto of Architecture. Antonio... Saint Elia, and Mario Sciatoni. And they say we are no longer the men of the cathedrals, the palaces, the assembly halls, but of big hotels, railway stations, immense roads, colossal ports, covered markets, brilliantly lit galleries, freeways, demolition and rebuilding schemes. We must invent and build the futurist city, dynamic in all its parts, and the futurist house must be like an enormous machine. So this is the vision that was shared by many people at the time, and that did in fact express itself in architecture and in art and in many other realms of culture. The idea here is that we're going to make science and technology especially the universal and rational basis for human life. And the key to scientific success is going to be to focus on, for philosophers anyway, to focus on the language of science. So A.J. Ayer, became very influential as one of the students of the positivist movement. He wrote in 1959, going back to this time, we cannot by philosophical analysis decide whether anything is real, but only what it means to say that it is real. And whether this is then the case or not, could be decided only by the usual methods of daily life and of science, that is, through experience. So, Ayer says philosophers should limit themselves to the question of what is the meaning of various Claims and whether they're true or false has to be handed over to the scientists. They have the, method- the empirical methodology that will enable them to make actual progress and to build up our knowledge. After all, even though in spite of the wars, of course, technology has been going forward. Medicine has made advances. Many people see it as uh, prolonging our life, as making a better life possible, as you know, forms of transportation that didn't exist are, are becoming more and more common just improving our life in every way and science obviously cumulative in a way that philosophy seems not to be. Philosophers continue to argue and get bogged down in uh, many same problems that they talked about in the days of Socrates. So in order to really move forward the logical positivists are going to suggest let the scientists do that. Now how did science for instance find out that there's no such thing as ether? For a long time there was a theory that, that uh, in the atmosphere there was ether and ether was a medium through which uh, light and sound and so forth uh, was transmitted. In 1887 um, the Michelson-Morley experiment tried to test that hypothesis that there was in fact ether and they transmitted a beam of light that was supposed to go across the flow of ether the way ether was supposedly flowing and they sent the beam of light one way and measured how long it took it from A to B. Then they sent it in a direction that was supposed to go with the flow of ether and measured it. And it turned out there was no difference. For the same amount of distance, the light take exactly the same amount of time no matter which direction you send it through. And therefore they decided there was no evidence that there was such a thing as ether. It made no empirical difference. And therefore we could just dispense with it. It should be eliminated from the language of science as a meaningless term. So the idea is that, just as in the case of Ether, right, observations, experiments could settle questions about what there is and what there isn't. And philosophy can only analyze the language in which those claims are expressed. So one would get rid of all of metaphysics, all the metaphysical questions about the existence of things like uh, free will or the soul or the existence of God as not testable in any way by science. Now, more importantly, I think, for these thinkers, one also gets rid of references to things like the spirit of the folk or manifest destiny or racial purity and and so forth. I mean, things that could be used as a justification for empire building or for colonization of other peoples and so forth. In his memoirs, in fact, Bertrand Russell tells of a friendship he had for a time with the the writer D.H. Lawrence. Their relationship, he says, turned sour after about a year or so. In Russell's words, he says, Lawrence had a mystical philosophy of blood, which I disliked. There is, he said, another seat of consciousness, which exists in us independently of the ordinary mental consciousness. One lives, knows, and has one's being in the book without any reference to nerves and brain. This is one half of life belonging to the darkness. When I take a woman, then the blood percept is supreme. My blood knowing is overwhelming. We should realize that we have a blood being, a blood consciousness, a blood soul, complete and apart from a mental and nerve consciousness. This seemed to me frankly rubbish, Russell says, and I rejected it vehemently, though I did not know at that time that it led straight to Auschwitz. So it's thought not just that, that these kinds of conceptions were trivial or worthless or a distraction, unhelpful, but they were positively dangerous. Russell was famous for writing one of his more popular books is called Why I Am Not a Christian. And it comes through pretty clearly in that book that Russell thinks Christianity isn't just mistaken, it's positively has a vicious and pernicious effect on human life and culture. He felt kind of passionately about these kinds of things. He saw himself in other words as clearing the ground, right? Getting rid of superstition, getting rid of irrational things and so forth in order to clear the way for a more sensible, more rational way of living. So we turn now to the Vienna Circle, as they called themselves, a group of intellectuals in the 1920s that began to meet every week under the direction of a newly appointed philosopher of science at the University of Vienna named Moritz Schlick. Schlick was the only philosopher at first in this circle. The rest were mathematicians and physicists economists and so forth, but their goal was to show that the claims of the sciences and only those claims are fully warranted, fully rational. That was the goal. And the method of the sciences, which is controlled observation, was the only way to publicly verify claims about the world. So in this respect, the Vienna Circle followed closely, I think, the uh, program of David Hume, early uh, modern British philosopher. Um, Hume had said and made the claim that every statement is either an analytic statement expressing a relation of ideas, true in virtue of just of the meaning of its terms and so forth, and hence it could be known a priori or independently of experience because you could understand it just by understanding what the terms mean. It doesn't say anything about the way the world is. Two plus two is four is an analytic statement. Once we understand what two means and plus and so forth and equals, then we will see very clearly that 2 plus 2 has to be 4, but it doesn't tell us anything about how many things there are in the room. Or if it's not an analytic statement, says Hume, it's got to be a synthetic statement which expresses something that is, goes beyond a mere relation of ideas. It can only be known a posteriori or through sense experience. somehow going to be based, for Hume anyway, on sense impressions then, because they are the only objects of our immediate awareness. If a sentence is neither analytic nor synthetic in this strictly empiricist sense, then it's sophistry and illusion and should be consigned to the flames, according to Hume. It should just be dispensed with altogether. So in, uh, on analogy with this, Moritz Schlick and his circle proposed the verification criterion of meaning, which says, as, as Schlick describes it anyway, he says, the content of our insight is indeed quite simple, and this is the reason why it is so sensible. It says, a synthetic proposition has stable meaning only if it makes a verifiable difference whether it is true or false. A proposition which is such that the world remains the same, whether it be true or false, simply says nothing about the world. It is empty and communicates nothing. I can give it no meaning. And that's it. So there are the two possibilities. If a sentence is meaningful, then you have to be able to verify it empirically, uh, show whether it's true or false. If you can't empirically verify it it's not really contrary to appearances maybe it's not making any statement at all it makes no sense whatsoever it has no meaning now what sort of statements then are going to be ruled out by this verification criterion well of course statements about the ether go down the tubes statements about occult forces of various kinds that you might find in your daily horoscope the influence of the stars and like those go But also, as it turns out, statements about God are not verifiable directly anyway. Statements about minds, or states of mind, like what I believe, what I want, and so forth. Any claim about heaven or hell, right and wrong, good or bad. All of these, since they're not empirically verifiable, are going to turn out to be not false, but just plain meaningless. They don't make a claim of any kind, one way or another. So this has pretty serious implications, then, for both ethics and religion. And, as I mentioned, A.J. Ayer was a very enthusiastic convert to this philosophical perspective in the 1930s, and he brought it back with uh, missionary fervor, I would say, to England. And, as I mentioned in the introduction, in the first lesson, ultimately with the rise of fascism in Europe, the members of the Vienna Circle left for more congenial climes, and universities in the U.S. and Britain as well. And so perhaps that's one reason why Logical Positivism had the uh, long career that it did. It had enthusiastic advocates in the end in many parts of the country. In his book, Language, Truth, and Logic, Ayer proposes that since moral claims and religious claims, you know, really they're they're nonsense, but he he thinks that's not quite adequate because we still want to make them, I mean, we still want to make moral judgments, it's hard to imagine how we're just going to stop doing that. So he proposes that moral statements could be retained as long as we just see them as expressions of feelings. So they're not true or false because the concepts involved in them aren't verifiable in our experience, but they can still be allowed, admitted as it were, into our language as long as we realize they're not really making any assertion or statement. So remember back to G.E. Moore and his proposal that the term good could refer to a non-natural quality of some kind. And so you could recognize pleasure is good by just perceiving, intuiting somehow, that this quality can be found in pleasure. Well, that's going to just be merely quaint now. It's to be considered total nonsense on the verification criterion view. There's no state of affairs that could be captured by calling a person or an action good, no empirical state of affairs. In the same way, claims about God will be neither true nor false. They'll make no verifiable assertions, so they would be simply nonsensical, devoid of meaning altogether. Now, there was the effort to apply logical atomism of this kind, of positivism, to science, and to show that the verification criterion could be developed in such a way, it could be developed into a kind of program for verifying the claims of the sciences, at least, and show it was supposed to enable us to express how it is the method according to which you know, the sciences make progress because they tie their claims to the facts. But there was this problem about trying to show exactly what that connection was between the statements of science and the facts. Early on, the program of logical atomism was very attractive to the members of the Vienna Circle. Uh, they encountered it in the writings of Wittgenstein and the Tractatus, which had been published in 1921. And the members of the Vienna Circle met to discuss the book. They invited Wittgenstein to take part in their discussions and so forth. And they were very hopeful that this kind of picturing idea, this finding the atomic sentences and then mapping them onto the atomic elements in the world would be the answer. It's a way in which you could verify scientific claims. Now, for Wittgenstein, that method was a logical method. He thought you should be able to reduce any genuine assertion to an atomic sentence made up of names that just map on onto uh, basic, the simple elements in the world. So there's that mirror uh, metaphor in the background there. But that metaphor raises, I think, a, uh, an important question or difficulty. What exactly is being mirrored in these sentences? In other words, what's out there that, the, exactly what is the element in the world that the sentence is supposed to be, you know, showing us, revealing to us? You might remember here um, uh, G.E. Moore and Russell later And their claim that what's present to our immediate awareness when we see, say, a giraffe, isn't the giraffe itself, but a kind of giraffe sense datum of some kind, or a colored patch of some kind. And Russell thought you could capture that in a kind of minimal atomic sentence like, giraffe sense datum here now, something like that. Or uh, in this area, there's uh, not far from us an ethanol plant. People sometimes uh, arrive here and say, what is that smell? And somebody will say, well, it's ethanol. Maybe you could even say ethanol here now. Or um, if you're not sure it's really the ethanol that smells, you could just say pew here now. Sort of on our lines of blue here now. But the sciences, of course, don't talk about sense data. They don't talk much about giraffes either, of course, the big items of our experience, unless it's casual day at the biology lab or something. They're not going to talk about that. And Wittgenstein lost patience, I think, with the Vienna Circle pretty early on because they seemed to him to be overly optimistic about constructing the ideal scientific language and insufficiently sensitive to realities that might be unsayable, as he had put it in the Tractatus. To them, on the other hand, Wittgenstein seemed a little eccentric. Rudolf Carnap, one of the members of the circle, described Wittgenstein as having an attitude toward problems much more similar to those of a creative artist than to that of a scientist. One might also say, similar to those of a religious prophet or seer. That's in uh, Carnap's intellectual autobiography. They never really fully understood Wittgenstein because he seemed to think there might be some things out there that you couldn't fully grasp in language. And obviously, this is totally anathema to the verificationist project. What they took from Wittgenstein, though, was his thesis summarized by Bertrand Russell in the introduction to the Tractatus that, quote, in order that a certain sentence should assert a certain fact, there must be something in common between the structure of the sentence and the structure of the fact. There has to be something in common. That is, the argument was from the nature of asserting something. If you're asserting, if you're making a claim that something is the case, then he says there should be a way and it's going to be true. Well, it's going to be true in virtue of corresponding to the way things are. So. What's the correspondence going to be? Because words are not really like the objects out there in our experience. Words are conventional for one thing, and we could use a different term in various languages to refer to the same thing, to the same cat, Fluffy. We can even call her by different names and so forth. It's still the same cat. So the words don't seem, you know, obviously to mirror the things in the world. So what's going to do the mirroring uh, on this view would be the structure of the sentences. They would have a certain grammatical or logical structure that would map on to the things in the world and enable us to capture them adequately in our language. So that was the goal of finding the perfect language. A difficulty as as we've seen we see early on now and we're going to take it up in the next lesson of trying to express this verification criterion in such a way that we'll really succeed in doing that, try to find the right language, the right terms. For a while in fact logical atomism of Bertrand Russell's variety almost despaired of being able to utter the right kind of basic sentences since any word you use seems to bring in a kind of theoretical or interpretive element in it. I mean, even something as simple as, you know, the cat is on the mat, how do we know it's a cat and so forth? We have to be able to pick out the things that make a thing a cat and so forth so that we at least know we're supposed to label it a cat. Can we be positively certain it's a cat? What if it's a raccoon or some weird thing that looks like a cat? So we're taking cat on the mat to be the bottom line here, but obviously, what if it's not a cat? So then he said, well, that's why you say, this is a cat, or even this here now, or something really minimalist. After a while, they even thought this and that brought in too much of uh, a context, and some thought you should just end up with just pointings and grunts. Uh, uh, you know, and people are supposed to kind of get the idea of what you're pointing to. Well, how is science gonna proceed with everybody just standing around, ooh, 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 it's just not going to work. So logical atomism was a grand project, a goal. It had a a kind of beautiful, elegant image of what's going to happen with the language of the sciences. It turned out it was very difficult to bring it into reality. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.